0: The world is a mysterious place. From strange encounters, grisly murders, to unexplainable disappearances, there is no shortage of the unexplained all around us, join us and let's search for answers and the truth, because we are the Mystery Canucks. What's up friends? Welcome back to the show. We are the Mystery Canucks. I, as always, am your host Matt, and I am joined today by my co-host, friend, amateur cryptozoologist, Etsy certified basket weaver, expert scuba diver, aspiring rodeo clown, and level 7 yo-yo master, Justin.
1: Um, I'm also an expert, sorry, master level bricklayer, if anybody uh, needs some work done on their house.
0: Doesn't sound as cool as yo-yo master. Last week, we looked at the Baba Yaga. Well, I mean, we didn't actually look at it because we'd probably throw up, but we talked about the Baba Yaga. Hopefully, that inspired you to look into some folklore, maybe the Firebird, maybe some Firebird folklore. Today, we are not going to be doing that. Instead, we are going to be looking at a case of pen pals gone awry. This is the mysterious case of the Circleville Letter Writer. Before we get started, if you hear a weird hum whenever I talk, I don't know what that is, so solve the mystery for yourself. And with that said, let's jump right into it. Circleville, Ohio. A town of about 13,000 people. The type of place you would think you could expect a quiet and peaceful life. However, in 1976, the town would be plagued by a twisted individual, writing letters, harassing, and threatening the town folk
1: for seemingly no reason at all. Like most of Twitter nowadays. Super quick, uh, has there not been a Twitter stalker or a Twitter letter writer yet?
0: I would imagine that there would be multiple Twitter stalkers and letter writers.
1: But ha- is there no cases of a famous... Spree killer, serial killer, using Twitter to harass his victims?
0: I don't know about Twitter specifically, but I, I think it was Rooster Teeth has an employee or had an employee or... It may not be Rooster Teeth, but I think she was involved with Rooster Teeth at one point. But she had a stalker uh, who used Reddit to, to harass her, or at least to vent about his harassment through YouTube.
1: Hmm. Reddit, the scum of the internet.
0: I thought that was 4chan.
1: Probably a little bit of both.
0: It's like 4chan light. The letters detailed personal information about said townsfolk and their lives. The letters were postmarked from Columbus, yet contained no return address. One woman in particular would be targeted more than anyone. This is her story. Mary Gillespie, Whose name I'm probably mispronouncing, was a bus driver for the local school and lived a seemingly normal life.
1: Yeah, I think it's Gillespie. (laughs) That's all right. That
0: was before the letters began arriving. Many of these letters outlined personal and disturbing facts, including that she was a married woman and mother, and that her home and family were under surveillance by this mysterious writer, among other things. She was also accused of having an affair with the school superintendent, and that she was to cease all activities with the man, lest the writer escalate their efforts. Obviously shaken and disturbed by these letters and accusations, Mary attempted to hide the letters at first and paid more attention to the people she encountered and passed in her daily activities. She hoped that the stalker would slip up and reveal themselves. I can almost imagine that she was hoping that she would just be walking through, you know, central town Circleville and would just eventually see a man wearing, like, a trench coat with those those glasses with the mustache and the fake nose. It's like, aha, I found you, and
1: unmask him like a Scooby-Doo villain. She needs to read a Barry Eisler novel. So, uh, the Jack... Jack Rain or John Rain? Oh god. They're like my favorite one of my favorite series of books. I can't even remember the main character's name. But uh he's a he's a ex-CIA agent and he teaches you how to tell if you're being followed. So the the one trick I remember off the top of my head is when you walk around a corner, because that person then has to corner, don't keep walking. Take like 20 steps away from the corner and then turn around and watch the corner. And then that's how you can kind of tell if you're being followed.
0: Isn't that the person who like John Krasinski plays in that Amazon Prime show, who was formerly Chris Pine, who was formerly Tom Cruise.
1: That's Jack Reacher. This is a half Japanese, half white. He's a hitman.
0: So Robert De Niro. Yes. The hit family. Okay.
1: 29% on Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) Robert De Niro in The Family.
0: I have another tip for anyone who might suspect that they're being followed. Clench your asshole very tight, and that way you can beat a polygraph.
1: <laughs> uh, oh, so obviously this is my first time reading Circleville, and I didn't do any research before the podcast, but I appreciate you writing this up for me. Uh, there's a Dean Kuntz book that is seems almost identical to what I'm reading so far in the first opening sentence. I can't remember what it's called, but uh, it's about a guy. I think it's a guy. Maybe it's a woman.
0: So like every novel ever? Yeah, man. I can't
1: remember anything today. He, he, he looked like a man. And uh, he, gets a, he gets a letter. And he says, if you don't go to XYZ and do this, then I'm going to kill a school teacher. But if you do this, then I'll kill a six-year-old child. And then the guy has to decide who he wants to die. And then he says, if you do nothing, I'll blow up a school bus full of children. So this person has to keep deciding who lives and who dies. I won't spoil the ending. So like the
0: average crosswalk guard person. It's like that clip in Family Guy where Peter's interviewing for a job as a crosswalk person. And they're like, so what's it, what interests you in the job? And he's just like, I don't know. I just thought it was kind of cool to decide which kid lives and which kid dies. So that's basically the plot of the Dean Koontz book, except there's a lot more penmanship involved.
1: I, I think it's called Velocity, maybe.
0: I mean, it sure as hell isn't Phantoms.
1: Look it up. It's pretty good. I, man, I love when Family Guy breaks jokes down like that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Her efforts were valiant, and she did a serviceable job of hiding her distress, until the writer named and threatened her husband. The writer stated that her husband, Ron, was to put an end to Mary's affair with the superintendent or die. If you think that escalated quickly, we can't blame you. But having said that, you should also check that the wiring of the escalator you're currently on is also not faulty, because those things are moving shredder death traps of doom. The writer threatened the couple that they would go public with the accusations in two weeks, unless this affair was put to an end.
1: So, quick question for you Was she actually having an affair, or is that never confirmed?
0: You will find out later in the story. Perfect. Mary and Ron only told three people about the letters and their sinister messages. The information was given to Ron's sister, her husband Paul, and Paul's sister. So the chain of information, just the grapevine of people that they tell, it's it's kind of weird how it how it cascades down. So it, you know, they tell Ron's sister. That makes sense because she's pretty, you know proxy to to all of this and she probably lives in circleville she tells her husband again it kind of makes sense but then he tells his sister so she is now what three degrees of separation removed from the situation it's almost like at that point she told the kid who was on his paper route in the morning just like by the way my my brother's sister-in-law is being targeted by someone like i just don't understand why it had to go to his sister after that like it it doesn't i don't know i didn't look into this enough to see if she was like an investigator or like a criminal profiler or something or someone who could have potentially helped with the case or you know ron and uh, ron's sister and her husband are just the worst at keeping secrets
1: so where does kevin bacon fit into all of this
0: he's the invisible man ah He's the, he, he's the one who's been passing the letters around. They, they just mysteriously turn up on your doorstep. He's the one handing them out. Mary had theories as to who may be behind these letters, and in an attempt to intimidate the writer into ceasing their campaign, the group had Paul write letters to these people.
1: Okay, this is some abducted in plain sight bullshit. What, you're getting written- someone is writing threatening letters to you and your best response is like, oh, well, I'll just write a threatening letter back to this person.
0: Yeah, you know what? It's almost like the way that I see it is it's is for, for the people who, who grew up with MSN uh, Messenger back in the day, it's almost like one of those things where someone creates a fake account. You're trying to figure out who it is. They're like impersonating someone. So you create a fake account in response to almost like out catfish the catfish, but it doesn't work because obviously they're smarter than that. Like, I just don't understand how writing a letter being like, I know who you are without directly naming the person would get them to stop because they're just like, you're full of crap. Like, obviously this is like, what?
1: (laughs) Who did they send these letters to? Was there a return address?
0: So on the letters that were sent to Mary and the other people, it was postmarked from Columbus, but there was no return address. So it may not have even come from Columbus. It could have been like falsified in some way, but... That I don't think has ever been confirmed. I'm not 100% sure. But beyond that, so she had theories. I don't think they ever named the people that she was suspecting may have written these letters. But apparently, I guess they just would have written the letters to these people. But can you imagine if you were just completely removed from the situation? You know, you wake up one morning and you have a letter from someone named Paul who's like just openly threatening and harassing you. Like, I know what you did last summer. I wouldn't even really be scared. I'd just be kind of like, I don't know a Paul, and that's it. That would just, and I, like, I would just go on with my life, because obviously, like, I have nothing to do with this.
1: Well, that's that's my voicemail on my cell phone all the time. You have an important message for, I won't say the name, because it's probably somebody's actual name, but it's an Italian guy that is not me. Consistently, twice a week, I get a, I get a message. This is RBC Bank with an, an important message for... Insert name. There you go.
0: I I would almost imagine that this is probably what voicemail was like back in the day. So they couldn't they couldn't call because it's I think this was like the 70s, so you couldn't just call and leave a uh, like a very long and threatening answering machine message that has, you know, it starts and ends with just heavy breathing and has like three words in the entire thing like I know what you did. And that's it. Like they could I I they couldn't do that. So instead You know, they busted out the quill and the the ink and uh, their parchment paper and decided to send a raven.
1: When I used to work at the mall, I had a really cute boss. And uh, I guess somebody had been in store, saw her, and had gone home and would call in probably once every two weeks. And once every two weeks he would call in and he would ask for my boss and then he would ask her for directions to the store and as she she'd be like okay where are you coming from okay so you're just going to go east on this street and you're going to go west at blah 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 and you could hear him on the other end like uh-huh okay uh-huh okay and then eventually i think she caught on that he was probably um what's what's a good euphemism <laughs> 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 he was performing a euphemism on his euphemism. And, okay, uh,
0: he was smurfing the smurf.
1: Yeah, so eventually we had to stop. Every time you'd pick up and someone would say, hey, where are you located? You're like, no, I know it's you. God damn it, Phil, stop calling us already. We know it's you. And he's
0: just like, I'm sorry. And then five minutes later, he calls, masking his voice. He's just like, hello, I would like to inquire as to where your store is located.
1: I'm going to put uh, one tally on the board for the Bane voice. I
0: had to bring it out for this one.
1: It it got a little suspicious because this guy would call all the time and never show up to the store. So
0: Well see, that's the thing is is he wouldn't actually show up to the store, but he would be standing, you know, like adjacent to like in front of another store. Like he's outside the hot topic, you know, down the way with like a pair of binoculars and a trench coat on, just kind of peering in, staring at uh staring at your boss with one hand precariously perched inside his coat.
1: Oh yeah, we had a mall flasher. I've actually had this requested. Uh, to be on the pod, the uh, the Newmarket Mall Flasher. You heard it here first, folks. I think he got caught, though, so it's not really a mystery.
0: The bluff initially seemed to work, as the letters and their threats had stopped arriving for several weeks. But then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked.
1: <laughs> I, th- I thought that was serious for a <laughs> second.
0: <laughs> In August of 1977... Ron received a phone call from someone claiming to be the writer. This apparently confirmed Ron's suspicions as to who the writer may be, though their identity was never revealed. He promptly grabbed his gun, loaded up into his pickup truck, and sped off, in an attempt to put this harassment to an end once and for all. This is a pretty ballsy play. As during the phone call with Ron, the stalker claimed that the Galipsy household, as well as Ron's truck, were being watched. So, ballsy play indeed. And here's what I don't really understand. Maybe, Maybe this information was never made public. Maybe it was covered up. I don't know. So he answers his phone. And allegedly on the other end is whoever's been harassing, sending these letters, threatening the family, threatening other people. And he recognizes the voice. Now, this is a town, I think, as of the 2010 census, it was just under 14,000 people. So I don't, I can't imagine how small it would have been however many years ago. But from what I've been told and what I've gathered from researching into this story, it's it was a relatively tight-knit area where, you know, everybody knew everybody. You know, you could leave your doors unlocked for some reason because whatever. Alarm force hadn't been invented yet. And he would have recognized the voice because he immediately hangs up the phone, grabs his like 22 or whatever, a pistol or something like that. And is like, I got the gun. I'm gonna go kill this guy. I don't know why I gave him an accent, but he hops into his truck and then speeds off. He doesn't tell. I don't think he told his wife or anyone else who this person was. This could have blown the case wide open. And I think he literally just like, just dipped. He was like, nah, I gotta go get this guy right now. And what makes matters a little silly is while he's having this conversation, while he's on the phone with this this harasser, they are telling him details about their household. He says that, like, the house is, is being surveilled, like, the truck looks a certain way, it's in the parking lot, or parking lot, it's in the driveway, it's in the household parking lot, also known as a driveway, and... That somehow prompts him to get in his truck and leave. That makes no sense to me. If the guy's watching, like, you know, it's not like he had a cell phone. He would have been either at a payphone or he would have been in someone's house nearby. So instead of going door to door trying to find out who
1: sounds like this person, he gets in his truck and leaves. Like, I don't. Does that make sense to you? No, he doesn't sound that smart. If the guy on the phone is saying to his, I was going to say to his face, but to his ear over the phone, hey, I'm watching your house. He's obviously got to be in the neighborhood somewhere. Why was he? He was gonna get in his car and just drive in circles around his neighborhood until he found the guy. Or? Yeah,
0: seriously, it's almost like he he lives in like a small little cul de sac and he's just gonna do a donut in his in his like street and then park back in his driveway and go knock on every door. Like I've been driving all night. I, yeah, are you the person who called my house ten minutes ago? I just it doesn't make any sense to me. Like yeah, it doesn't sound like a smart play. You know, like now it makes a little more sense because if I get a phone call. I live in an apartment, but if I, if I get a phone call and someone goes, I'm watching your window, first and foremost, I live in a very populated area. So it could be anywhere, but at the same point, someone has, someone could have like a high powered telescope and be farther away and be calling me from a smartphone because those things exist now because it's 2019. So it makes a little more sense for me to hop in my car and try and investigate the situation versus this guy (laughs) versus this guy who's literally like, I don't know. He, he may be standing at a payphone calling the house. He may be in someone's house, like across the street. And his first thought is, I'm going to get in my truck and leave to go find this person who's probably like 500
1: meters away from me. It sounds like he I had an idea of the person that he was going to go after. And he was getting in his car to drive across town or something to that, to that guy's house or woman's house, whoever it was, and uh, lay down the law.
0: The only thing that I can see that would justify him getting in his truck to leave is if they have such a routine where, you know, every day from work, Ron gets home at 5 o'clock, you know, he kicks his shoes off, he cracks a beer, he sits in his favorite chair, and he watches, you know, sports ball. I can imagine at that point, realistically, if if they surveilled the house, you know, for a week, for example, this stalker, And they saw the same thing happen every single day. It makes a little more sense that they would be able to call the house from somewhere completely off the grid off, you know, somewhere else in town and be able to relay that information because it's routine. It makes it makes more sense at that point. than You know what? No, I'm not going to give I'm not giving Ron the benefit of the doubt. He's stupid. And now he's dead. Mere minutes after leaving in his truck, Ron was found dead, his truck destroyed after crashing into a nearby tree. Investigators and authorities found that Ron had fired at least one shot from his gun before crashing. Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe questioned a few suspects and eliminated at least one from consideration. Before ruling Ron's death an accident, the product of a man who lost control of his vehicle while drunk. What was not mentioned was why Ron fired a shot, or possibly more, from his gun before crashing. Great police work, Dwight. So I have a story. I used to work in a patio furniture, like wholesaler and warehouse. And it was right next to a Chinese food restaurant. The only thing is, so the curb between the Chinese food restaurant and our store was probably a good three feet off the ground. So so the restaurant was three feet taller than, than the level ground for our store. So one day I'm sitting near one of the loading docks because it's a slow day. We're not doing much. Probably putting a table together because what else am I doing with my life? And I'm standing with my manager. We're doing stuff. We're just talking about comics because that's what we did. And we hear a huge loud bang. It sounds almost like a metallic explosion, but not an explosion because obviously that would be a lot louder. This is not a Michael Bay film. And so we we throw the gate open, the loading dock. We hop down and we see that this, this woman who is driving like a, a Mazda CX-7 or something to that effect, just like a big SUV. And had driven off the curb and was now, like, diagonal with the floor. So she, I guess instead of hitting reverse to back her car up, she just slammed on the gas and put it in drive. And bumped off the the curb and basically took a nosedive into the ground. But the thing is, is her wheels we're not touching anything. It was her front and back bumper that were suspended. One was on the floor and one was touching the curb above us. So she couldn't go anywhere. And we go and we, we you know, we pull her out of the car. We're like, oh my God, are you okay? Like we're trying to figure out what the hell happened. So she's in a daze and she looks at us and she goes, I could have swore I put the car in reverse. And we're just sitting there like, even if you put your car in reverse, you like she hammered the gas, there was force involved, so if you had hit if you'd put your car in reverse, you would have backed straight into the restaurant. She would have taken out like one of their load bearing walls. So hearing about how Ron crashed his car into a tree and how they think that he may have been heavily intoxicated, I can honestly imagine him. You know, like, let's say he reverse parks into his or like, or not even reverse parks. Let's say he he's parked in his driveway and he backs out of his driveway and he's ready to speed off into the night. And instead of pr- uh, putting his car in, in drive, he keeps it in reverse and just slams on the gas and reverses straight into a tree, airbags deploy and just like gives him a brain hemorrhage and he dies. That's, that's what I, that was the first thing that I pictured when I heard this story. I was like. I thought, of, I thought of this little woman who probably shouldn't be driving because she doesn't know the difference between drive and reverse, but that made me think of Ron and, and the fact that he had to get in his car to find someone who was probably like walking distance away from him.
1: I think that's almost what I imagine as well. I think, uh, here's another one for you. Gun goes off. Where is the bullet
0: hole? And that's the thing, yeah. Like, he had fired his gun, they say, at least once, maybe more. So, if he... The way that I see it, so, he was drunk. They did a talk screen, and I think they said his, his blood alcohol level was twice the legal limit. And given that, given that notion, what I theorize happened is he got in his truck because he's stupid. Oh, I mean we he's know also he got drunk. in his truck. Yeah, he's <laughs> drunk, so you know what? You're not really making the smartest decisions. Drinking and driving is bad. Don't do it. And, you know, he's ready to peel out of his driveway. He he potentially may have gotten out of his driveway and was and was leaving to go confront this person when he then sees the person standing like on the side of the road or something. Because, like I said, they were probably like 20 feet away from his house. He then shoots to try and hit this person, but then loses control of his car because one, he's drunk two he's operating. a a, like a vehicle a death trap at a high rate of speed with a gun in his hand that he then fired it was probably loud as hell so it probably you know threw his equilibrium off and he then just lost control of his car wrapped it around a tree again all of this stems from the fact that he just didn't think for a second and say this person's probably really close to me i'm gonna just stand outside shoot my gun in the air three times and ask them to very nicely to come out with their hands in the air. Just like they just don't care.
1: You ever think it's weird how vehicles are... Well, especially if you have any kind of sports vehicle. It's just a uh, like a 400 horsepower engine strapped to a gaming chair. <laughs> I never thought of it that way. <laughs> like It's just a chair that goes really fast. That's I mean, it's in a box and there's a lot more to it, but... The way that I see cars,
0: and I'm sure anyone who drives in a major metropolitan area or like a suburb can agree with me. I mean, I've never lived in the country or like near a farm, so I can't confirm for those people. You might be able to agree with me. They are death traps. So when you're driving on a highway, for example, you are literally in a death trap going, you know, like 120 kilometers an hour among other death traps. It literally takes one person like sneezing, or blinking the wrong way, and like those thirty death traps are all neatly piled up like a Michael Bay movie. It's it's the sequel to Transformers we never got, and it's just like it it's scary. It's a scary thought, but at the same point, we're so accustomed to using these death traps among other death traps that it's just completely normal to us. That's why I always question people who speed like crazy. Like, you know, you're on the highway, you're in the far left lane, you're going 120 with the flow of traffic. And then someone in the far right lane, which is supposed to be the slowest lane, breezes past you going like 160. You're like, it just takes, literally, you you just have to tap your your steering wheel the wrong way. And you're in a ditch. And, you know, you're probably going to eat the steering wheel. So, why?
1: You ever heard of what the French call... Excuse my French. L'appel du vide? No. So something like that. It's Call of the Void in French. It might not even be how you say it in French.
0: Oh, okay. I do know what Call of the Void is, yeah.
1: So it's when you're going... I mean, this is just an example of one of them, but when you're going, you know, 140 down a highway, and you just think to yourself, what if I crank the re- the wheel all the way to the right or to the left and just hop into oncoming traffic? Yeah. What would happen?
0: It's it's an exam yeah the the one example that i hear the most is when you're standing near a ledge of like a tall building or a cliff or something it's like what would happen if i just jumped but you don't because you you have common sense like your your animal instinct kicks in and says don't you dare because we very much like being alive because you know cheeseburgers are are where the living are so you don't jump but that's that's what the call of the void is. And it it is at an actual psychological condition that apparently everyone has at least one point in their life. You know (laughs) I read uh I read a thing about that where they interviewed someone who I guess was like a new parent and was holding their kid and they were like, Yeah, the call of the void, you know, kicked in my brain and was like, What if I spike this baby like a football? And it's like, I you don't you don't want to spike the baby like a football, but I I can understand, you know psychologically how your brain has those thoughts because it's actually i think it's like a a mechanism that's supposed to be there because you're supposed to override it with your common sense and say no brain that's stupid don't do that no like a like you're training a dog except it's your brain brain dog
1: Oh, okay. Quick comment on Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe. What is this? A Harry Potter office crossover? What well, he's got, <laughs> he's got Sheriff Deputy Hermione Halpert and rookie recruit Ron Beasley. Like <laughs> anyways, that's whatever. I think you may have just written the next big sitcom. <laughs> oh, it's the Harry Potter people mixed office, but they're all cops.
0: I wonder if, if you would be very sweaty watching that, like you'd be watching an episode of Cops. I think it'd be funny. Well, it's funny. I was going to make a Harry Potter joke, but then I realized the character's name is not Harry Radcliffe. It's Danny, Danny, Ra- Daniel Radcliffe. Danny Radcliffe just sounds like he's like eight years old. It's almost like, um, again, bringing up Family Guy when they make fun of Billy Joel. And he's just like, does anyone ever call you William Joel? And he goes, no. Does anyone call you Petey Griffin? And he goes, No, because I'm an adult. So like Danny Radcliffe just wouldn't work. But yeah, I was I was gonna make a joke about that and call him a Harry Potter character, but no, he's just he's just Daniel Radcliffe's inept older brother or like distant cousin from across the pond who does questionable police work. Let's twist this twisty mess of a story even more, shall we? Shortly after the ruling, several Circleville residents began receiving letters claiming that Radcliffe, the world's okayest sheriff, was actually involved in a cover-up, which surprised exactly no one. Paul corroborated this claim by stating that Radcliffe had initially mentioned that he agreed that foul play was involved in Ron's death, but had changed his mind after a suspect passed a polygraph test. If you remember our talk about how polygraphs can be beaten, you could argue that the suspect just clenched their butt into another dimension to pass with flying colors. This also makes Radcliffe look somehow even worse, as we all know how credible polygraph tests truly are. He just really, that that suspect just clenched for dear life. He may have been completely innocent, but all he had to do was clench. It could have been the person. What I don't understand is he interviews one suspect like he he just had it all right. He threw a Hail Mary on that one on that one suspect and it got intercepted by the opposition and was promptly like scored. I don't know sports ball, but why would you change your mind unless it's a cover up? Unless you're just like the worst detective ever and you're like, we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. Like, I just don't understand But beyond that, it just, it doesn't make any sense as to why, assuming that whoever's sending these letters saying that he's involved in a cover-up would send the letters if they were the person who potentially got Ron killed in the first place. Like, why implicate yourself further? Like, I just don't understand. I don't understand. Like, is it a taunt? Or is it just like the world's weirdest flex? I don't, I don't get it.
1: Well, I'm excited to hear if they start sending more letters, so let's get back to it. Alright.
0: One day, we here at Mystery Canucks will find the high-ranking Illuminati official who stole our first episode. This is where we talk about butt clenching being used as a means to pass polygraph tests. And we will show it to the world. The only thing that lends credibility to the death being accidental was Ron's blood alcohol level. He clocked in at 0.16, more than twice the legal limit. This came as a surprise to Ron's family and friends, however, as they did not see him as a heavy drinker.
1: And I mean, my parents didn't see me as a heavy drinker in high school. And uh, I wasn't a heavy drinker in university, and that's how I'll leave that story.
0: <laughs> Pay no attention to, to us. We're just... We're the perfect innocent, uh, we're the perfectly innocent adults. I don't know. Shortly after this circus of an investigation began, Mary and the school superintendent, whose last name is in fact not Chalmers, admitted to having an affair. Despite this, the two swear up and down that their relationship did not start until after the letter-writing campaign began.
1: Okay, what? So someone wrote her and said, hey, I know you're having an affair with this guy. And in her head, she's saying, 100% I'm not having an affair with this guy. And then she goes to talk to him and say, hey, someone wrote me a letter, thinks we're having an affair. And he just naked mans her. He's like, well, why don't we make it true, baby? It's the 70s. And that's how it began. Like, oh, these people are crazy. It's
0: honestly the worst defense that you can possibly imagine, especially because it's like, Okay, yes, it did happen, but after the letters started, it's like it's almost like they incepted the idea. It's just like we thought, hey, why the hell not? They're they're writing these letters about us, so let's let's give it a try. And so she went after Super Nintendo Chalmers and you know, they had they had a fling.
1: First theory, it was the superintendent and he really wanted to get with Ron's wife, and he inceptioned her. Good good use of that word, inceptioned her into having an affair with him.
0: I almost imagine that this is just honestly the worst defense ever and it's just the laziest train of thought, line of thinking, defense, whatever you want to call it, where they have they have an affair because Ron's too busy getting drunk and driving around in his pickup truck apparently and making really stupid decisions, you know, driving... Driving to his neighbor's front yard to to ask for a cup of sugar, even though he lives next door. Just terrible on gas. That's That's why the affair happened at all. And they got caught with their pants down. Not literally, figuratively speaking. Although they may have gotten caught with their pants down, literally. I don't know. I wasn't there. And basically then used this letter as an excuse to say oh well it started after this it was just such a good idea we thought why the hell not i just i i I can't get behind the fact that they i can't get behind the fact that they legitimately use that as their reasoning like how do you justify it at that point like hey the letter told us to do it
1: so we did it like i don't understand are there more murders in this story or is it just ron who dies no it's just ron oh I feel a lot less, a lot less sympathy, and a lot less mystery. The letter writer, we will never know. But I mean, Ron was drunk driving, and these people are acting silly. So, I mean, my sympathy is not really reached out to them.
0: You know, it started out with a lot of people getting letters. This this took place before Mary got her first letter. And they were just outlining details of their lives and things that they were getting up to and just very intimate details of their lives to the point where it was becoming just kind of disturbing. But like I said, I almost imagine it being a small town where everybody knows everybody. So word would probably travel very quickly. So one person may have gotten this information and just put it in a letter. And then from there, it then becomes targeted harassment against Mary, which I almost thought was probably the intended outcome from the beginning where they just needed to almost have like a like like a fallback you know where they could be like oh well I was writing letters about everyone it's just Mary got the most because you know she was extra naughty this year so Santa sent back all her letters for Christmas I don't I don't know but yeah I have absolutely no sympathy for her Ron you know the Super Nintendo Chalmers Basically, anyone that we come across in this story is just a super unsympathetic character because, one, she was having an affair. They admitted to it after the letters came out, even though Ron had actually gotten wind of the affair through the letters, and she could have just come clean and been like, yeah, it actually happened, instead of waiting for him to die and then be like, he took he, he took the secret identity of this person to the grave, so... He doesn't get to find out that I was secretly ca- cajoling with the the superintendent. So I got no sympathy for for her. I got no sympathy for the superintendent. Literally this this affair is like all he does in the entire story. He just he thinks with the wrong head and that leads to some harassment against Mary. Ron is just stupid. I mean, drinking and driving is his first stupid mistake, but beyond that Knowing that this person is watching his house, getting into his truck instead of just walking into the middle of the street, you know, like, like the greasers versus the socias, like he's going to have a brawl in the middle of his street with like rusty baseball bats or something. And he, he makes, he just makes a really stupid play. And I think again, that's why he fired the gun is because <laughs> he was probably, you know, peeling out of his neighborhood or peeling off of his road and he saw the person and was just like, "You bastard." And is ready to shoot his gun thing and then in his head like a light bulb clicks off, but it's only half lit. It's like one of those really crappy non-LED light bulbs that's half burnt out and it's just like, "I have an idea." The guy was probably standing in the street the whole time and that's why he fires his gun and wraps his car around a tree. Like, "Good good job." Everyone in this town is stupid. Like, why Why is everyone in this town stupid? It's the town of rejects. It's where America sends their dumbest people to just live their lives out. Have affairs and write letters to each other.
1: I'll always bring it back to abducted in plain sight. With That, that line where they, he said, oh, it was the 70s. We hadn't heard of pedophiles yet. Like, <laughs> it was 1976 and we hadn't heard a letter harassment yet and they just don't know how to deal with it. They've never they've never encountered anything like it before.
0: That's weird. Like I would imagine I would imagine that like letter writing campaigns would have been very big back then. You know, cuz this would have been around the time where well actually even before that probably like a lot of you know like a lot of bands probably got like hate mail, which would have been like harassing letters. You're the devil's music Led Zeppelin or something like that, you know. So I can imagine that this is just a much smaller scale version of that, but in a much smaller town where things would ramp up a lot. And, and become a lot more serious in nature. To the point where, you know, like, if you're, if you're like Led Zeppelin and you're reading these letters, you know, you're just like, well, yeah, it's probably some 14-year-old schmuck. Kind of like what ha- would happen now, you know, you, you get a hateful comment on Twitter and you're like, well, yeah, it's probably a 14-year-old schmuck hiding behind a screen. The harassment continued well into the 1980s and would escalate beyond simple letters and phone calls. At first, in February of 1983, Mary began seeing threatening signs on the road along her bus route. Could these have come from the writer? We
1: here at Mystery Canucks say... Maybe. So this harassment continued for six, seven more years? What?
0: Yeah, and it's kind of weird because in one of the earliest letters to Mary, they said that they would continue harassing her until she came forward with the affair... But even after they came forward with the affair, the harassment continued. It almost makes me think of that Black Mirror episode. I think it was literally called like Troll or something like that. Where... I forget exactly the the circumstances, but Brawn of the Blackwater is in it from Game of Thrones. And basically, the this hacker or something like that has all of this dirt on the people who are involved in the episode and gets them to do these really like heinous and kind of messed up things. Or else they will revere, revere, Paul revere this information about them. They'll reveal the information about them when I can speak words properly. And they do all of this stuff and it ends up, spoilers by the way, I'm going to spoil the episode. If you, if you, uh, if you, if you have a hard-on for not being spoiled, then pause right now. Go watch that episode of Black Mirror. It's actually quite good and then come back and listen to the rest of this. You've been warned. But at the end of the episode, it's literally like this one kid teenager maybe young adult i don't know actors are really weird you know like when you look at a group of high schoolers but they're actually all like 40 this is kind of the reverse where i think the person's supposed to be in their 20s but looks like he's like 15 and i guess he was watching risque videos involving underage people and that was what they were going to expose him for and he has to literally like highlander fight someone else who i don't know what they have on him i forget and they Highlander fight in this forest while a drone led like controlled by the hacker watches and the kid beats this guy to death and then as he's leaving the forest he gets arrested and everyone who is involved except for the guy who got beaten to death gets a text message where it's the troll face from the rage comics and all of their information gets publicized so it's almost like that where where you know the the threatening letters are saying well go public with this information or else I'm going to continue harassing you. And then she goes forward with it with the superintendent. And I can almost imagine the immediate letter she got after was literally just one word. It's like, dear Mary, psych, best
1: regards, your stalker. I wish I had a comment on that, but I can't think fast enough. But it's a good point. After days, if not weeks
0: of seeing these messages on the road, Mary had enough One day, she decided to rip the sign down and really show it who's boss. What she was not prepared for, however, was an Indiana Jones style booby trap hiding behind the sign, ready to kill her or whoever came across it. The trap was comprised of a box containing a rigged gun, set to fire if she had pulled the sign a certain way. In the latest installment of World's Okayest Something, it was discovered that there was an amateur attempt made at rubbing off the serial number on the pistol used in the trap. Good job, killer. Thumbs up to you. Lab tests were able to lift the number, and it was determined that the gun belonged to none other than Paul, who had recently separated from Ron's sister. It's always someone on the inside, let's be real. Paul was adamant in claiming that the gun had been stolen. So you haven't heard about this yet because the first episode on the Keddy Cabin murders is still in the ether somewhere. It's in it's in the iCloud. We gotta get like Jennifer Lawrence involved to figure out who hacked it so we can get it back. That's a burn. (laughs) I'm sorry. But I'm not. Anyway. He says that the gun was stolen. Okay. Let's just think about this for a second here, like critically think about it for a second, which is more than anyone in Circleville did during this time. He says that the gun was stolen, but when they find it, they find that someone had tried to rub off the serial number. So if the gun was truly stolen, why in all hell, in the Great Celestial Smurf, would they friggin' try and rub off the serial number if it would implicate Paul, if he was truly innocent? It makes no sense to me. It's, It's asinine. Like, I just don't understand it. You're literally guaranteeing that an innocent man goes to prison if you leave the serial number intact. So, just leave it. Unless Paul was the one who did it, and because this is a town of idiots. No offense to anyone who lives in Circleville now. I'm sure you're great, but, you know, like, back in the day, they're all idiots. Tried to, like rub off the serial number it's almost like someone who gets a tattoo but then regrets the tattoo and tries to rub it off with like a sponge as if it's like a henna
1: man i've done that with freckles i thought it was mud but it was really a freckle and then i realized it was a freckle I-
0: you scrubbed like four layers of skin down and it's still there it's just it's just like a cylinder of a freckle going all the way down to like the the fourth or fifth layer of skin i don't know how many layers of skin we have oh probably like if th- i had to guess 13 Yeah, probably
1: probably like 12 or so let's just say that
0: You were like just about to hit like vein and you're like, it's still there. You're like, why is this? Why is this mud? It's the world's most resilient mud. But yeah, it just makes no sense to me. Why? Why the hell would you as the as the person who tried to set this trap up first and foremost in a town of stupid people, kudos to you for engineering that kind of booby trap. The thing is, you are taking a huge gamble on the fact that Mary would be the one to take the sign down. Because what if it was just someone, like a good Samaritan, who was like, damn, kids and their vandalism, and then goes to pull the sign down and gets shot. And it's just like a 65-year-old, you know, retiree, who's just trying to do do right by their community. Like, you'd look really friggin' stupid, especially since Mary was the intended target. But beyond that, you try and rub off the, the serial number as a means of concealing who the gun belongs to. So why, if you were the killer, or the alleged, or not the alleged, but the the attempted murderer. And you're not Paul. Why the hell would you rub the serial number off? It just makes no sense to me. You're literally guaranteeing an innocent man goes to prison if if you leave it intact. And he really had nothing to do with it.
1: And then you can walk away scot-free and continue harassing people with letters. You've convinced me. It's Paul. I'm 100% sure. Nothing will ever shake me of that decision.
0: So I know you can't judge a book by its cover. But Unsolved Mysteries covered this episode at some point in the '90s, and I think they—I think they actually interviewed Paul. So he was—he was. He was um, what you'll find out is he was incarcerated for a little bit and was later paroled. And I think this episode aired after he was paroled, so they interviewed him. And I guess he tried to look all nice, you know, he's wearing a suit with a tie. Is. Well, I don't—I don't really know how you would have styled his hair. It was the '90s; people made choices that are questionable. But if you look at a picture of him, like, go to the Unsolved Mysteries wiki or look at it, just, like, look it up in some sort of internet database. The internet is a very powerful tool. I mean, Paul is also a tool, but in a different regard. And when you look at him, you're like, it's kind of hard not to see that he wouldn't be just,
1: like, this, the, the guy. Like, he's, he's the guy with the letters. Is this another reference to our first episode on Keddie? Where you have to guess which one of the people in the story has priors. Is this like (laughs) 100% now that Paul's acting now that I think about it, Paul's acting shady probably has priors. Ron's DUIing. probably got priors like this is more. These are just criminals fighting more criminals. That sounds like the plot of a movie that would star Jason Statham. It's
0: almost like Death Race, except instead of racing, it's just like a battle royale.
1: Yeah, and then Ron didn't even make one lap around the neighborhood before he lost the death race.
0: Yeah, seriously. He 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 was the car that exploded as soon as it crosses the starting line. You know how there's always that one. every I haven't seen every death race movie because there's like 16 of them now. They're trying to bank off of it like the Fast and the Furious movies. But in the first one, there's always, or like first however many, there's always going to be that one car that either just fails to start and explodes or like... There's some foul play involved and like one of the criminals has like a gun under his seat and just shoots through the window and hits the guy in the face. And you're just like, well, yeah, that's one way to win the death race. I guess it's in the name. There's always that one car. It's always it's it's always the first one to go right as soon as it starts, because if that doesn't happen, how do you know that the stakes have been raised?
1: Which death race is it with the car called? I think the car was called Tombstone or there's that scene where the the guy says, you want me to drop the tombstone? Isn't that a isn't that like a
0: monster truck? Oh, no, I'm thinking of Gravedigger. Yes. Uh, the, that's a monster truck. Although Tombstone sounds like it could be like Gravedigger's arch rival.
1: I don't know. It was a big metal plate on the back of the car, and then they drop the Tombstone, and it just phew, uh, it annihilates this car that's behind them. It's kind of like an oil slick, except it's a five-by-five, five, probably, f- I don't know, 200, 300, 400-pound metal plate. That's what's going to happen in the next Bond movie. You're going to
0: see Bond like you know, driving through the Amalfi Coast in in his Aston Martin. And then he's just going to hit a button. They're not going to tell you what the button does. He's just going to be like, you know, Q's going to be like, don't press the orange button unless you absolutely need to. And he's going to push the button when he's being chased. And literally, he's like, the trunk's just going to open and like six cinder blocks are just going to rock it out of it. And it's just, and they're just going to, you know, like tombstone the other cars. And, and he's going to go back and be like, Q, like why did you do that? And he's just gonna be like, yo, so I was watching death race and I had this really
1: wild idea. It's much, probably much more effective than an oil spill. Although I've never driven through an oil oil spill.
0: I mean, I've never been in a high speed chase involving secret agents. So maybe we should ask Charles Morgan. Oh, too soon. Hack sheriff Radcliffe asked Paul to try and recreate the letters sent to the circleville residents as a sort of handwriting analysis to see if they had a match. He also asked Paul to recite them verbally as he wrote, since Audible wouldn't be a thing for another 12 years. Did you know that Audible started in 1995? Neither did we. After the exam that Paul most likely did not study for, he escorted Radcliffe to his garage, where the gun had allegedly been stored before being stolen by absolutely nobody. He was then arrested and charged with the attempted murder of Mary Gillespie, which is again, very hard to pronounce. In a strange twist, while on trial, Paul was not charged with writing the letters, although they were heavily used as evidence against him. A handwriting expert testified, stating that Paul's handwriting matched the letter writers, making him the culprit.
1: Okay, just something really quick here. There's a lawyer who goes on the episode of the Joe Rogan podcast and he talks about bringing in experts and he says, all you have to do is pay these people whatever their fee is. It could be 1,200 bucks. It could be 6,000 bucks, but you can find in any expert and you can tell them the facts of the case and they'll come in and agree with you. It's it's hard not to, for them to have that bias and then just agree with the way that they've been propositioned to agree with. And secondly... um." Mary testified saying she believed Paul was indeed the writer after speaking with his ex-wife. This sounds like one of the last episodes of season one of my... Oh, wait. I'm getting Mindhunter confused with Manhunt Unabomber. Oh, man. Okay, so this is like episode seven of Manhunt Unabomber season one where, who is that guy? I don't even know that actor's name. I don't know anything about anything. That, that's what's happening right now. My brain just fried. So when they realized the Unabomber's, the brother of the Unabomber, reads his manifesto and realizes, hey, this is exactly how my brother writes. It's probably him. What I'm seeing here is that Mary and his ex-wife seem to think from the letters that that's the way Paul would write.
0: Wouldn't he have, like if he was truly the one behind the letter writing campaign, would he not have revealed himself when he was writing the threatening letters back to the alleged writer? Because that happened like way earlier in the story, like like years prior when Ron was still alive and making bad decisions.
1: You know how he delivered them? He just put them under his pillow. He woke up in the morning and he went, oh, my God, a letter to me from me.
0: <laughs> he's like Drew Barrymore in Fifty First Dates. He just completely forgets it. And then by the time he's finished reading it, like, oh, yes. <laughs> or like, uh, what is it, Guy Pearson in Memento? He's, he just wakes up and is like he has tattoos on his arm, like write letter to self. Threaten Mary is on, like, his other forearm. Alleged affair. Ron crashed into a tree. Make booby trap sign with gun and sign. And then, like, on his on the top of his foot, it's like, make sure you buy arts and crafts to make sign. It almost, when, it, when you were talking about experts, it almost makes me think of, like, every episode of Pawn Stars ever. Like, I wonder if that's legitimately what happens in, in these high-profile criminal cases. You know, like, someone's arrested for attempted murder, and they need, like, a handwriting expert, or they need a forensics something-or-rather expert. And they hire this person to then give a testimony, and all you see is just, like, Rick from Pawn Stars walk out just be like, don't worry, I know a guy. And, like, ten minutes later, the guy comes through the door and, and... looks at the looks at the handwriting and goes yeah that's uh that's a genuine bona fide circleville letter writer. that's what you got right there i i think uh i'd I'd appraise this at about twenty five dollars and then the judge is about to lay down his verdict and Rick interjects and goes, You know I can only do about you know eleven fifty can can we can we can we settle for twelve Because he has an expert for everyone. I hate that show with every fiber of my being. But you got to give the guy credit. He knows an expert for everything.
1: Some of those have to be plants. Those are actors for sure. Oh, I guarantee There's there's really obscure stuff. He's like, so this is uh, Blackbeard's toilet paper holder from his ship. And this guy, he's like, well, I'm actually an expert in 16th century toilet paper holders that belong on ships. You're like, no, you're not. Absolutely not. It would be
0: really funny if they took it to, like, a like a medieval historian or something like that. And he goes, no, this, like, we can carbon date this. It was from, like, the 80s. This is a butt plug. <laughs> and Rick's just, like, he looks at his his obvious plant 16th century toilet paper holder historian. And the guy's just like, hey, man, it's called Craigslist for a reason. Mary also testified, saying that she believed Paul was indeed the writer after speaking with his ex-wife, who had similar suspicions. In a final f*** you to Paul, his boss testified that Paul was not at work the day the booby trap was found. Things were not looking good for our boy Paul here. Paul allegedly had an alibi for the day the trap was found, yet never took the stand in his defense. It's not like this alibi may have helped or anything, but you do you, Paul. Despite maintaining his innocence, Paul was convicted and sentenced to 7 to 24 years for his crimes. While incarcerated, Paul himself received letters, allegedly from the real writer, claiming that they were determined to keep him locked up. These letters were also postmarked from Columbus and continued to arrive, despite Paul being moved to solitary
1: confinement. Quick point about the letters coming out of Columbus. If you watch Manhunt Unabomber and not season one of Manhunter. still although, a good show. It's still a good show. Um, but in season one of Manhunt Unabomber, they're, uh, they get confused about why all the packages are coming out of the Bay Area. And it turns out that the Unabomber himself is from Colorado, I think, and he was taking a bus ride just so he would take a three or four, whatever, however long the bus ride was, an eight-hour bus ride, I don't know, and uh, would take that bus ride just to mail us packages. So the letters coming out of Columbus doesn't really mean anything. That person could be coming from anywhere. And what they had done is they had underestimated and their search parameters were way off because they assumed because so many packages had come out of the Bay Area, that the person mailing them had to have been from the Bay Area.
0: That's a good point, too, because, yeah, like Circleville is in Ohio. So. So is Columbus. I don't know if you if you have been paying attention or if you have a map handy. But I'm assuming that they are just like math hours apart from each other by car or even even by bus or or any form of transit that isn't just walking. You know, this isn't the Lord of the <laughs> the Lord of the Rings, the quest to mail these packages to Mary Gillespie. And it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense as to why they would immediately just say it has to be from Columbus. And I feel like when it comes to just mailing letters themselves, like you could probably fudge some details a little bit. Versus like a package where there are probably more parameters involved in mailing them. Because you could probably just throw like a Colum—he Maybe maybe this person was a stamp collector and just had like, you know, they're buying their their randomized stamp loot boxes from uh from the precursor that would eventually become EA Games, and they just kept getting duplicates of the Columbus friggin' uh stamp, and so they just keep postmarking them from Columbus because they have just a backlog of these stamps. I I don't know I've I've never mailed a letter because you know like the internet exists we can just email, but I almost imagine it being something like that where they just he just maybe just went to a a post place. Post Postmaster? Post Office. That's the word. Words are hard, friends. Remember that. And just buys a crap ton of Columbus stamps. He could have just driven to Columbus itself and just bought those stamps and then mailed them from Circleville. But since they have the Columbus, you know, stamp on it, they're postmarked from Columbus. They have no return address, remember. So it could have come from hypothetically anywhere. Imagine <laughs> Imagine it's just like some NSA agent from like, you know, Washington, DC, who has just like a very primitive spy satellite or just their home has been bugged because it's the NSA. And they're just sending these letters to Mary just to mess with her. Like she's, she's accidentally blowing the whistle before Edward Snowden ever did. Paul became eligible for parole in 1990, but was denied due to these letters. He was eventually paroled in 1994 and continued to maintain his innocence until the day he passed away in 2012. So here's something that I really don't understand about this parole hearing. Now it is entirely plausible that the letters that Paul was getting in prison could have come from a copycat. He may have actually, if he was truly the one who wrote the letters, he may have had someone as like an accomplice, if you will, the Robin to his Batman. I mean, they're like the world's worst superheroes if that were the case. Like, I would not trust them to fight crime. But he could have someone on the inside to write these letters while he's in prison in an attempt to almost like help exonerate him. So he can then come forward and be like, no, judge, there are 400 letters, you know, 365 days a year. But somehow I got 400 letters and it can't be me because how can I buy stamps for Columbus when I am in prison so I, I just can't imagine why during this parole hearing he would be denied because of the letters like that makes no sense to me like like if he was the one if he was truly the one responsible for writing the letters it still doesn't change the fact that he was getting them while he was in prison so i have a feeling that it was either a copycat or he he hired someone or had someone he knew who was trying to help him get out and and wrote these letters to him. But like, what the hell, parole board? Like, it just, it, it defies all common sense at that point. Because they're like, well, yeah, he keeps getting these letters. So we're going to keep him locked up just in case he was the one writing these letters that are impossible for him to write. It makes no sense to me.
1: It's a good point. And I agree with you.
0: I still think it's Paul. I genuinely think it was Paul. There may be some credibility to his claims due to some of the revelations made by journalist Martin Yant. He discovered that 20 minutes before Mary was almost booby-trapped to death, another driver on that route saw a man standing next to a yellow El Camino where the trap would eventually be found. The person Yant believes may be the writer allegedly has a relative who owned the same type of car. The man's description also does not match Paul's, furthering the possibility that this mysterious man of mystery may have been involved in some capacity, or maybe the writer himself. Well that, or this individual just really wanted to show off his sick ride to the local honey's in Ohio's February weather for some reason. With all of that said, let's look at the incredibly short and not at all substantial theories regarding this twisty adventure. Our first theory
1: states that the writer was none other than Paul himself. This is the correct theory. Uh, we could just probably end the podcast right now, I think.
0: Thanks for coming by. <laughs> no need for the rest of the theories. It's all good, folks. I put
1: my stamp on it. It's official. Is it? It was Paul.
0: Is it a Columbus, Ohio stamp?
1: Uh, j- Just postmarked for Columbus.
0: He was married to Ron's sister for a time, and as such, may have had some insight into his and Mary's life. Further, it was Paul's pistol that was found in a trap set to end Mary's life. What makes it even more suspicious is that the serial number had been partially rubbed off before the trap was set. If Paul's claims that the gun was stolen are true, then why in the Great Celestial Smurf would the would-be killer rub off the serial number? It would just point authorities away from the real killer, and they'd send an innocent man to prison. Even further still is that during the trial, a handwriting expert compared Paul's writing to that of the writer, and concluded that there was enough similarity to legitimately name Paul the Circleville letter writer there are only two factors that may point to a writer that is not named Paul. I mean, they might be named Paul after all, we don't know their names. The first is that while in prison, Paul received letters from the alleged writer stating their intent on keeping him locked up. While this could be a copycat, it's still suspicious as hell. The second factor is the man with the yellow Camino. This man was supposedly seen in the same spot the trap would later be found and was related to someone suspected of writing the letters. Substantial evidence, you might ask? Hardly, but you be the judge. After all, you're probably judging us already. This final theory came about as a result of the information gathered by Martin Yant as well as other investigators. This information suggests that there were at
1: least three writers involved in the letter-writing campaign. This information suggests that Ivan, the merchant's son, was involved with three Baba Yaga sisters in the walking campaign.
0: Yeah, I can almost imagine the third Baba Yaga sister using her firebird feathers to wish these letters into existence. She just she just wished with all her might and... You know, two hundred years later, Mary starts getting these threatening letters. A gun mysteriously disappears from a uh, from a guy's house, and is is meticulously set up in a booby trap. It's that it's that gosh darn Baba Yaga. I gotta tell you,
1: I'm pretty flip floppy on this episode. So now that you say that there's three writers, it's more interesting than uh, I think Ron's death. So I'm just gonna go ahead and say it's three writers confirmed. We could just end the episode right here. Let's go. Do you want to hear who the who the writers might be? Of course I do. Let's let's hear it.
0: Alright, I'm about to I'm about to drop a truth turret on you. Whether they coordinated their efforts or not is unknown, but kudos to them if they did. Since we all know how difficult it is to coordinate something as simple as a movie trip with friends, without something going horribly off course. The three suspected individuals and their possible motives are as follows. Writer 1. The Superintendent's Son Recall that Mary had an affair with the superintendent at a time the letters would have been circulating. If the son was involved, it may have been due to him discovering the affair and threatening her out of anger. It may have also been in an attempt to protect both the superintendent and his family from any embarrassment, but who knows for sure. Writer number 2, Random Coworker number 5. While this individual sounds like an extra in a C grade made for TV movie starring Steven Seagal, it is believed that this coworker was heavily infatuated with Mary. If this is true, their involvement may have been motivated by a desire to end the affair Mary was having with the superintendent, as well as her marriage to husband Ron. This way, they could creepily creep into her DMs and they could begin a relationship. Because that's totally how this works.
1: Man, I don't... Random coworker number 5, I don't get why dudes act like that. If in, I can't have
0: you, no one can.
1: In what world is you writing threatening letters to the woman you like, breaking up her marriage to her husband, and also breaking up her affair to her not-husband? She's kind of a shit person, but this person is also a shit person for thinking that whatever he's doing is going to win Mary over.
0: So the way that I see it is, you remember... Well, maybe you won't remember, but there's the whole thing of when you're a kid, you don't really know how to express your emotions. So if you're, like, six years old and you have a crush on a girl, you might, like, pull her hair or, like, step on her toes.
1: Oh, yeah. The harder you pull her hair, the more you like her.
0: Yeah, so it almost seems like he never really escaped that phase of his life. And (laughs) he's just, like, a 40-something-year-old man who operates on an emotional level of, like, a six-year-old. It is fully coherent and is, is... a grown ass man but is just like I like her so I'm going to write her threatening letters because I like her I just yeah I don't understand that train of thought like you know it's it's it really doesn't make any sense like what is what is he hoping for like Stockholm syndrome he's just going to reveal himself to be the letter writer and then they're going to be the basis
1: of one of those Fabio romance novels 10 years later he's looking for what the spin off of wedding crashers would have been so funeral crashers you know, is so it Will he's Ferrell? Will Ferrell, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I was about it, to say this says something like, "Oh man, weddings are great, but girls are the horniest at funerals," and that's what he's trying to capitalize on.
0: Yeah, so this was this was the this is actually the prequel to Wedding Crashers. It's just like letter threateners. That's that's what it is, and it's starring who would have been big in the '70s, like Farrah Fawcett and. I'm drawing a blank. I, I wasn't around during the 70s.
1: Chuck Norris, there we go. For some for no reason other than that it's Chuck Norris. Can't you just say Clint Eastwood? Because he's like he's gotta be like 120 now, so. Writer number three. Paul's
0: ex-wife, aka Ron's sister. It is believed that after Ron and his ex split, she began dating a man that would later be identified as the man standing by the El Camino who we will now refer to as the Kamino guy.
1: Real creative, right? Isn't that a word from Star Wars? Like that planet where they make the clones?
0: Yeah, Kamino was actually the planet where they made all the clones. That's that's true, where Obi-Wan uh, confronts Jango Fett. I almost said Jabba the Hutt.
1: Like he could fit into that armor. I don't know where I was going with that. I just had to remember what the name of the planet was called. Where's Genosis? It's in a galaxy far, far away. What happens on Genosis? Do they ever go to Genosis?
0: Yeah, that's where the um that's where the battle at the end of episode two takes place, where friggin Mace Windu kills Django Fett.
1: Okay, so what's the Coliseum battle? What planet is that?
0: That's genosis That's Genosis? I think so. Yeah. Oh, that's the that, that entire planet thing, thing takes place on genosis I like that that f- lizard that's like that. <laughs> 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 oh wait, no! Are you talking about in episode three the lizard that Obi Wan rides?
1: Yeah, yeah. Whatever that thing. That thing has a name, doesn't it?
0: I th- it probably does. I think but it's, it's a named it's,
1: character. It's
0: the one where he's fighting General Grievous and he's riding in the giant hamster wheel. Yeah, and, and he's chasing him in the lizard that's just like. Bleak, bleak, bleak.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I wish I had that sound effect uh, on a buzzer. I could just play it whenever I want. <laughs> we'll do th-
0: We'll start that in, in future episodes. We'll connect my my stream deck and be able to play sound effects in real time.
1: Oh, but that obviously that tangent wasn't going anywhere. I just I just wanted to remember if there was a planet named Kamino in Star Wars.
0: It fully it fully was in episode two. Yeah, it was uh it was the really rainy planet, which was probably a really bad idea to send a Jedi there because they wear robes, which I'm assuming are mostly cotton. Or, like, whatever the the far, far away galaxy equivalent of cotton would be. Bantha fur. So, yeah, that that would just absorb all of the rain. And you would be incredibly weighed down. So, if you're fighting someone who's in, like, a titanium alloy armor. Who is a trained bounty hunter with a jetpack. And, like, a really weird rocket. Like, I don't know why he had a rocket in his backpack. Like, it makes more sense to shoot them out of his wrists. Or, like, have one, like, mounted on his shoulder like he's Predator versus his backpack cuz you you have to like completely do like a squat and then bend your body forward like your whole upper torso 90 degrees to shoot this rocket at someone it just makes no sense to me but yeah like you're fighting you're fighting someone who has pistols or like laser pistols because it's it's not earth and it's raining it's like torrential downpour like like just hurricane insert name kind of weather in southeast florida somewhere and you're a jedi wearing cotton robes the only thing that isn't cotton are your leather boots because reasons
1: bantha leather
0: of course it's just yeah banthas are just jack of all trades and and yeah you would just be heavily weighed down like you'd probably imagine ewan mcgregor weighs i don't know like 150 pounds in that movie he'd probably be easily like 200 pounds in that And now I get Jedi's have the force. But that doesn't account for the fact that you'd be weighed down. So like your reflexes would probably be a little bit slower. So he should have like six or seven blaster holes in his chest right now. Instead, he got Darth Vader to death.
1: Do you think that there's a Star Wars PETA that doesn't want you wearing Wookiee? Like scarves and Wookiee jackets, Wookiee skin jackets.
0: I would I would imagine. So, yeah, they they're all they're on Coruscant. Is it Crescent?
1: Corscont. Croissant,
0: yeah. Croissant. They're on the planet Croissant, and they're just standing outside the Jedi Temple, you know, like free the Banthas. Free the Banthas. You know, <laughs> Wookiee Meat is murder. <laughs> or something like that. I, I don't know. And then you just see you see like Palpatine when he was a senator, or like like uh even before that, he was just like a janitor working for the for the uh the Galactic Republic and he just shows up one day and he sees them and he's just like I might be able to use this one day good good and that's how he slowly rose to power as he rallied these people to his cause and was like we're gonna unify the galaxy and save all the Banthas you know the, the ice caps of Hoth are melting we gotta, we gotta protect Hoth
1: what is the two-legged dinosaur thing called on Hoth Tarantulon.
0: no that sounds like a spider What's the what's the name? I I don't
1: know. Cut open. Are you not a Star Wars? No. Oh, Tauntaun. Tauntaun. Yeah, I called it it. Yeah, Tarantulon. Whatever. It's kind of close. Tarantulon sounds like it could be in a Transformers movie.
0: It's just an arachnid robot in disguise. Like it. It's it's almost like how the Dinobots don't transform; they're just dinosaurs who are also robots, and it's just a giant tarantula.
1: The old G one Dinobots transform.
0: Yeah, I'm talking about the sh Michael Bay movie where oh, yeah. Optimus Prime has a sword. I I You know what? I'm not going to lie. They're all bad. Like, every single one of the Transformers movies is bad. That one is the best just because Grimlock's a badass and he breathes fire. So, like, say what you will. And, you know, Mark Wahlberg made some questionable decisions being in those movies. I honestly feel like it was just an excuse for him to just work out and get paid by Bud Light. Because he drinks Bud Light in that movie just to get paid to, to drink Bud Light and work out, and not really have to do anything. He just spends most of the movie running. It's like, yeah, I'm gonna get my cardio in for the for the day. I'm just gonna go. Michael wants me to run down that strip with the
1: uh, the CGI robots. Now, do us say how do you say how do your mother for me? <laughs> it's Nice meeting you, Bumblebee. Say how do your mother for me.
0: Oh my God. One of her relatives actually owned an El Camino during this period. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that it may have been used, along with Kamino Guy, to turn up the shenanigans all the way to 11. What are her motives, you might ask? We here at Mystery Canucks have no freaking idea. So allow us to shoot in the dark and guess something that is likely true. One day, Mary went to Paul and his ex's house and took the last ego out of their freezer for herself, angering the ex. This is totally legit, and many would probably react the same way. In all seriousness, the ex may have discovered the affair between Mary and the superintendent, and began the letter-writing campaign as a means of ending the affair for the sake of her brother Ron. After Ron's tragic accident, the escalation to violence began. So I have a comment regarding Ron's sister being one of the letter writers and why I think it's it's just like fooey. So if she was one of the writers, then who was the one who called the household and said, I'm surveilling your property, I can see the truck in the driveway. Because if Ron recognized the voice as his sisters, he would not have left with his gun. Because if Ron recognized the voice as his sister's, he wouldn't have hightailed it out with his gun. He would have, maybe not calmly, but he would have, you know, gone to her house and been like, What the hell, Karen? All you said was you wanted to speak to a manager, and now this? What are you doing? You're ruining my life. Like, I just, I don't understand it. I can understand her being a writer after the fact. Like, after Ron passes away and uses that anger towards mary like maybe she blames mary but again it still makes no sense to me i still think paul did it
1: i think you're right i definitely agree that paul did it he probably used his ex-wife to send letters to him in the prison just to try and get him out like this is one of those things where everybody has priors they're all alcoholics like I wouldn't doubt that these people are on and off in on and off relationships, even though that they're married and they're not married and whatnot. So she probably still has feelings for him. He probably still has feelings for her. She's gonna help him out because, as much as she probably hates Paul, she's his ex-wife. She also hates the justice system even more, probably for for everything that the the entire family's been through. So I, I would believe you if you told me that Paul was one hundred percent the letter writer, and his sister acted as the. De facto writer after he went to prison to try and get him out of prison a little faster. Well,
0: yeah, that's like what I was saying about having someone close to him or someone that, that is willing to vouch for Paul, even though he, he is a piece of work. And as such, they write the letters to try and be presented to the parole board as evidence that he couldn't have written them because he was in prison but I guess what they weren't banking on is that the parole board were as competent as everyone else in this story, so not very. And it just leads to him not being paroled for another, I think it's like four years, two to four years. So, I mean, A for effort, but F for execution, and I can also give a whopping, we'll give we'll give a, a, a C- to the parole board, and like a D- to, to Sheriff Radcliffe. I think they all I think they all need to be held back a grade I think that's what I'm trying to say with it with this investigation I'm a teacher now apparently that's that's the list of my my degree list is gonna get added to now i'm i'm a I'm a de facto teacher who fails everybody apparently
1: so this is my letter writing story um it's not very good and it's not very long but uh my parents this is just talking about world vision actually for a second so my parents sponsored a little girl out of Cambodia. Her name was Sufak. And uh, she was out of, I cannot remember the name of the city she was from in Cambodia, but I remember it sounded like coughing or something like that. Like you had to cough the first four syllables of the of the name. Oh, she's from Phnom Penh, which, which is like the capital or something of Cambodia. Where do you get coughing from that? I don't know. It, it just, man, the neurons in my brain don't light up at the same time. So it's all, it's just all misfiring. Anyways, we sponsored her, I think, oh gosh, I was maybe eight when we started sponsoring her and she would have been six at the time and then my brother would have been five. And then we sponsored her until she was like, I don't know, maybe done high school and ready to go off to university. But what we didn't know at the time is, so we had sent letters back and forth to her and said, hey, like Sufag, I hope things are going as good as they can be because you live in poverty in Cambodia but we sent you enough money for some chickens and hopefully that helps and we sent her clothes and like Canadian um, memorabilia and stuff so they say you can't send too much because you don't want to like affect the financial equality of the village where they live but uh, we always send her like little trinkets and stuff that they had approved on the World Vision website so we weren't like close with her but we were pen pals and then uh, I guess when she graduated high school Randomly, we we got our letter from World Vision, and we're like, "Oh, can't wait to see what Sufac's up to." And it was this f- like random four-year-old kid. We're like, "Who is this?" It was a little boy. We're like, what happened to Sufac? And then we had to call in. They're like, "Oh yeah, we didn't tell you, but we automatically transfer you to a new pen pal after that person is no longer eligible to be in the World Vision program." So we, I think we had sent a bunch of stuff. I think it was right around Christmas and we had sent a bunch of stuff to what we thought was going to be Sufax family, went to this other kid's family. And as much as it was charitable as a kid at the time, I was like, man, I wish we didn't send all that stuff, went to the wrong person. So uh, that's my World Vision story about my little letter writer.
0: I mean, at least it didn't turn out that that your pen pal was like a 46 year old inmate of a correctional facility in, you know, like like somewhere in Cambodia or just somewhere else in the world. And is just pretending to be this person. It's like, yes, send me clothes. (laughs) And you know, you send like a youth small imagining that it's like a little eight year old girl. And in fact, it's like a 46 year old man. And he's trying desperately to wear like this root sweater that you sent him. (laughs) He like cuts the sleeves off and it's still like a belly top. He looks like he's Jessica Simpson. At least it didn't turn out like that. No one got killed, which
1: is a lot nicer than this story
0: you didn't you didn't have a 46 year old man knocking on your door like hello yes i am pen pal <laughs> i i am little girl please please answer your door please hello yes you sent me chickens hello yes please answer i can just i i i never had a pen pal or at least i don't think i did i may have a lot of a lot of memories have escaped my brain for no reason other than the fact that i'm pretty sure i've been abducted by aliens like multiple times I'm not being serious, because I probably am an alien. What? Anyway, so a lot of thoughts just escape my brain, and I I may have had a pen pal a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away on planet Camino, but I have no idea. I have no idea if that's legit or not. My pen pal was the person who would then become Boba Fett. Let's just go with that. I got I got one final letter after the Battle of Geonosis, just like they f- killed my dad, and that's it. That's that's just it, and and now he is slowly being
1: digested for a thousand years. Quick question, and we don't have to get into a tangent, but is that Jango Fett's kid? Technically yes, but
0: literally, well, literally yes, technically no. So technically, Boba Fett is a clone that they that they modified so the clones in star wars were all based on jango fett they used his his likeness and his dna that's why they all sound the same uh and i guess they look the same because i i haven't actually watched the clone wars like tv series so i i don't know if that's legit but they they age at a rapid rate like they become adults very quickly so, I think what they did was they just modified his his DNA in the cloning process to make him age like a normal person. So, when, when Obi-Wan meets them, like, Boba Fett's, I don't know, like, let's say eight years old. So, he's just, like, this little kid. And then, I think after episode three, it's, like, 17 years go by to episode four. And I think it's another, like, two to three years, maybe even more, between that and episode six, when you see Boba Fett allegedly get killed he doesn't actually die spoilers if you've read the extended universe books he actually survives the sarlacc pit he somehow manages to get out gets a new ship and then goes on these wacky adventures trying to hunt down han solo which almost sounds like every episode of inspector gadget ever like they're just he's just trying to get han solo and he just ends up in situations where he just you know like like team rocket trying to get pikachu just like (laughs) looks like i'm blasting off again and you know he he just tries again because he's got he's got pizzazz
1: that was quite the tangent
0: (laughs) i like star wars okay i mean even even with the direction they're going in now i still like star wars all right so closing thoughts uh paul and yeah i mean don't because he he has passed away and we are not necrophiliacs I definitely think it was Paul. I think if I'm going to be completely legit with this and be serious for a second because Lord knows we're never serious, I think it was Paul because why else would you rub the serial number off of the gun? It just, that is no pun intended. That is the smoking gun that I think leads to my conclusion because everything before that is purely circumstantial. But he tried to lead a booby trap He tried to lay a booby trap. I can speak words. I promise. And it was then found out that it was his gun. Serial number was partially rubbed off. And it was done in such an amateur way that it almost makes me think that he just like taped like a like a post-it note or something like that to the serial number that says not the property of Paul, whatever his last name is. That makes me think that it was Paul. And that makes me think that whoever he was in cahoots with, he may have been in cahoots with someone. It could have been the superintendent's kid. It could have been co-worker number five. It could have been his ex-wife. It could have been all of them. I have no idea. Nobody nobody came to the conclusion that Paul could have been a fourth writer and it could have been just four people who who somehow like, unknowingly coordinated this massive hate spree on... Arguably a pretty a pretty crappy person, but still. So I just... I think it was Paul. I think that he had at least one accomplice who would have written him letters while he was in prison so that he could try and prove his innocence to get out. But thankfully, the parole board are about as smart as everyone else in this town in the 70s. No offense to anyone living there now. You're great. But, yeah. So it's it's Paul... And an accomplice. Who is the guy in the El Camino? Clint Eastwood. And that's it. What do you think? Were these letters written by a man on the inside? Or were there more than one person involved in this pen pal campaign of doom? And why were these letters going around at all? We here at Mystery Canucks like to think that had this case taken place today, the messages would have come from an anonymous account sliding into some poor sap's Twitter and Instagram DMs. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are the Mystery Canucks. If you'd like to get in contact with us, follow us on Twitter at Canucks Mystery, or send us an email at mysterycanucks at gmail.com. We publish a new episode wherever podcasts can be found every Tuesday. And remember, the world is full of mystery.